You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. That's Jesus. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the only verse we're really going to focus on tonight. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Thank you, Lord, for the night that you've given us. So thank you for this, your word. Thank you for this truth. I pray that you'd help me to convey it clearly, and I pray that our hearts and minds would be open and that we would be willing to receive the truth and, uh, and, and act on it. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. We pray that you bless the reading of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A few years ago, um, my, my wife and Jace and I were driving in, in town in, in Stillwater where we used to live. Jace was, was two years old, and he was just starting to really talk and have good conversation. And he was kind of the late bloomer of all of our kids. Um, we, of course, we had four girls to start, and they just seemed like they talked early and never stopped. Um, Jace, he was like, what's the point of talking? Everyone else is talking for me, so I'll just hold off on this. And he, was, he had just really started using sentences, and, and I realized how much he was catching one day because... We were driving along um, in, in town, and we were going somewhere, just my wife and Jace and I. Jace was in the back seat, in his car seat, and we were driving in front of a school. And if you've ever, if you've ever been near a busy school, at the, right before school starts or right after school starts, you know it can be a nightmare, traffic. Like for instance, the other day I made the terrible mistake of driving down by Sioux Falls Christian School right before school, and I thought I would never get out of there. Cars everywhere, lined up for blocks, and it was just, it was a nightmare. So we were driving by this school, and, and that's what was happening. There, was, there were cars in the parking lot, just completely packed the parking lot, um, and the last car in was right next to the curb, and we're driving down, so we have an open lane, but there's cars in the other lane coming this way, and they're ready to turn in, and get into the parking lot, but there's no space. So we're driving along, and, and for some reason, this lady decided that she wanted just to go ahead and turn in, but in turning in, she blocked our lane. So I was driving along and then had to stop, and school's not out yet, so the cars in the parking lot aren't moving, and the lady that's now parked in the street in front of us isn't moving. And none of us are moving. And, but, the, but the problem was I could have been moving. Um, and I'm telling on myself a little bit tonight. It's okay, okay? I'm just going to be transparent. So she cut us off and got in our way. And, and I, my first reaction was, was not spiritual. You say, I can't believe you're, you're a pastor, your, your first reaction is always supposed to be spiritual. Well, I know it's always supposed to be. 
So I resorted to, and don't take this worse than what it is, but I resorted to my driving language. And my driving language usually consists of words I tell my kids they're not allowed to say, unfortunately. And usually it's, it's, either, it's either idiot or stupid. And I know you're probably judging me and you're, you're ready to like change your membership. I get it, okay? But these are, these are the things. As a human being, I'm a human, and uh, these are the things. So she pulls in front, and I said, stupid woman. But then I said, God bless her, and that solves everything. <laughs> it cancels out. You know, I said that. And as soon as I did, I mean, I knew my wife was there, and she's seen me in, you know, far worse. But my son, who's two years old, and starting to really register these things, I hear him gasp in the back seat. <gasps> Dad. And he couldn't say his R's for a long time. Dad, you're not supposed to say stupid. <laughs> and, so, and so, again, this is a very humbling experience, just telling on myself. And I said, but you're right. I am sorry. I shouldn't have said that. But, you know, she's right. She's still right in front of me. I'm trying to justify why I said it. You see what she did, though? You know? And he said, and then he started, I think, feeling bad. Feeling bad that he had reprimanded his, reprimanded his dad, which he shouldn't have had to, but he felt bad. And he said, he said, women's all stupid. You're just not supposed to call them stupid. <laughs> Just like that. We've, we've taught him otherwise since. The misogyny runs strong with this one. Well, then he started backtracking on that thought and realized that his mother was sitting in the front seat. And now he's insulted her. And he said, um, well, women's all stupid when they're driving. As if now to fix it with mom because she's not the one driving in the moment. And, you know, I, that story has always been a humbling story to me. It's one that we tell as a family. And I just wanted to finally let you in to hear what my driving language is. And as humorous as that might be, it was a humbling moment because what I realized and what I, I've known, it, it was just obvious now it's in front of my son, but Lashing out when we feel wronged only happens when we're operating out of pride. When we're operating out of pride, our natural response is to lash out and, and retribution. But disciples are called to be filled with the Spirit and to be like Jesus. So proud responses have no place in the Christian life. I mean, the problem is our natural reactions are to say something. Our natural reactions are to lash out. Our natural reaction is to get our way and to win every battle and to win the conversation. That's how sinners are wired. And if you don't believe that, just stop and observe any area of life in which people interact. At the grocery store, you'll see this. On the road, you will see this. At work, you probably see this, depending on the environment you work in. Uh, hopefully, we don't see this, Brother Samuel. You and I and Judy don't see it, hopefully. Um, in, in government, in politics, 
at the grocery store, on the streets, and even in church, unfortunately. And the expected response is to get angry if things don't go your way and or if someone does something that you don't like. But the day that we became children of God, all expectations changed. See, the reason, well, Jesus Christ came and, and he changed our nature. And he gave us a higher calling. He gave us a higher standard. When he came, he didn't do anything the way that you think a king should when he comes. I mean, he was born in, in, in a stable and laid in a manger. He was raised by a carpenter. Uh, he, he was a king, but he served others. He could have prevented himself from going to the cross. He could have escaped it, but he didn't. He bucked all the trends. He changed everything. And as his followers, we are to follow him. We are to do the same. The problem is it's not natural. I mean, even the great apostle Paul said, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. In 1 Corinthians 7. And human nature is one. We, we just have exceeding pride. I mean, when, when we're born into this world, our primary, primary concern is one thing. Me. Have you ever tried to talk to a baby about your problems? They don't listen. They don't care. Because we are born with a me-centric worldview. Uh, babies want what they want. They want when they want it. They want it how they want it. They don't like to wait. They don't like to be hungry. They don't like to be dirty. They don't like to be uncomfortable. They want to be held. This natural me-centric worldview is hard to shake. And it doesn't really matter how long you've been saved. You'll always have it. You'll always battle it. We want our way. We want to be comfortable. We want the last word. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to win every conversation. We want to get the credit that we deserve. It's pride, 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 me, me, me. And culture doesn't help. Because culture caters to the me-centric worldview. I mean, Burger King said it, have, have it your way. And Nike said, just do it. And, and all these, express yourself, believe in yourself. Uh, find the champion in you. Me, me, me. And we all struggle with it. And don't act like you don't. You say, well, me, I would never struggle with something like that. I'm, you're talking about me here. So I hope you see the irony in that. Jesus knows our nature. He knows our pride. He knows our tendencies. So the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's way of showing his disciples how to live above the world standard. How to rise above the me-centric worldview and self-righteousness. And, and not to sound prideful, but honestly, disciples ought to outlive the lost. We ought to. Because we have the advantage of a changed nature and we have someone who showed us exactly how to do it. So we ought to outlive the lost. And I'm not talking about quantity or length of life. I'm talking about quality of life. And if we claim to follow Christ, but our spirit and our interactions are no different than the world's, we aren't outliving the lost. We're living down to a lower standard. And that's when Jesus, that's what he's trying here to teach his disciples. I look down at Matthew 5.20. He says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when he says exceed, he's not talking about how much. He's referring to what kind. 
What kind of righteousness? He's talking about the quality of righteousness. Because the Pharisees, they offer this, this superficial, organized religion. And they taught that a person was righteous if he attended the feast. And he observed the rituals. And he followed their tradition. That's righteousness to them. And it sounded, that sounds pretty me-centric. Because it's about what I can do. It's about what I can accomplish. It's about performance. And pleasing God in my power. Christ taught his disciples that unless their righteousness was a different kind of righteousness than the Pharisees, they couldn't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, God does not care for a me-centric approach to the religious life. Pride's always been an affront, an offense to God. Proverbs 16, even everyone that is a proud heart is abomination unto the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Proverbs 21, 4, a high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the Sermon on the Mount flew in the face of the Pharisees, just like it flies in the face of the me-centric approach to life that all of us struggle with. And you know what Jesus Christ was really preaching? If we could sum it up. He was saying, it's not about you. Life's not about you. Life's not about me. And he spends Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, giving example after example of how we should live not about us. The Christian life is actually a life of self-denial. And that's why these chapters were so revolutionary. That's why the sermon makes such a difference because it went against everything that the Jews had embraced for centuries and, and we don't have time to cover all of it. So I just want to focus on his first words. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I submit to you tonight that the most essential quality for a disciple is humility. The most essential quality of a disciple is to be poor in spirit. And, and let me give you just three. This is simple tonight. Three, three essential reasons that a disciple should be poor in spirit. Um, number one, to be poor in spirit is essential because to have a meaningful relationship with God. You cannot approach God with pride. God is our father and God is our friend and God loves us. But I think we have gotten a little bit imbalanced in the modern church movement today that is all about God's love and it's all about God's friend and it's all about being intimate. And by the way, that's the reason that that we try to maintain a certain standard with the, with the hymns and the songs that we use. Because there's a certain intimacy in a lot of the modern church worship music um, that may be fine as an expression of love to a spouse. But it, it, feels, it feels wrong as an expression to a God that is holy. And I'm not saying it's all wrong. But, but I think there's an imbalance in modern church movements today. And they're all about the love and they're all about intimacy. But we forget that God is a holy God. And he is righteous and he is sinless. And yes, he's our father and he's our friend and he loves us. But he is creator and we are creation. We can't forget that. He's holy and we're sinners. And even though God is our father, there's a huge difference between us. And maybe that's why pride is so putrid because to him, because we have nothing to be proud about. But I keep the difference, I mean, listen, if I keep the difference between God and me in mind, I should not have trouble being poor in spirit. Yes. 
Because that gap, if I'm seeing it clearly, that gap is huge. Greek, the Greek word for poor here is tokos, which literally means beggar. I mean, if you look up the word, it means beggar. And what it means is to cower and cringe like a beggar. The idea is you shrink from someone or something like this. And it implies that you're begging um, out of desperation and shame. And I've seen just on, I mean, just up here on I-229, I've seen those that, that are begging uh, on the side of the road, which there's, there are certain spots in Sioux Falls where you'll find them quite often. And there's somebody that's begging there. And everybody that walked by or that drove by, he was yelling at him and say, don't judge me. Don't judge me because, because I'm the one out here begging. You don't know me. And he was very arrogant about it. Well, that's not what the word here poor is, is implying um, see, there's a difference in the word here. This word means that you have nothing else to hold on to. There, there's another word in the New Testament that, that is begging, or that means poor as in someone who's so poor they have to work and toil to earn everything they have. That's not even this word. This word means that there's nothing. It, it's shame. And, and, and it's not talking about just somebody out there to make a buck. This beggar crouches. And, and this beggar is unwilling to lift his eyes and look up. And he's destitute and lowly and afflicted. These are all words. If you look up the word, these are words that, that are in the definition. Afflicted, helpless, hopeless, powerless, possessing absolutely nothing. This word for poor is much more than just somebody who doesn't have money and has to really work hard to go out and earn it, which probably that word might apply to, to more of us in here than we realize because we all have to, we have to work hard. That's not what this is talking about. This means this is, this is less like the beggar that has to work hard and more like the beggar who's crippled and even if he wanted to, could not go out and, and earn money for himself. That he literally is absolutely and wholly and completely dependent on someone else to show him some kind of a kindness if he's going to even survive. That's what poor in spirit means. It's the opposite of pride. Pride means that you're self-sufficient. Pride means that you can go out and you can do it for yourself and I can set my mind to it and get it done. Well, poor in spirit means I can do absolutely nothing. If someone doesn't carry me to the corner, I won't have any money today. Absolute humility. That's the mindset that we as sinners, Jesus is saying, that we as sinners are supposed to have before a holy God. Christ wasn't telling his disciples to be physically poor and live like beggars. He's referring to, a, to poor in spirit. An attitude that, that is to be one that like a beggar, we're totally dependent on God for everything and anything that we have good in our lives. If we don't have him, we don't survive. There's no self-reliance, there's no self-dependence, there's no self at all in this word. This beggar, if he refuses help, he will starve. And a child of God, here's how we are to live. A child of God who tries to live apart from the dependence of God, we will spiritually starve. And Christ is saying you must come to the place in your life where you acknowledge your inability to live by your means and be completely and wholly dependent on me. And I think about the song, Without Him. You know the song, with, I'm sure you know it. Without Him, I could do nothing. Without Him, I'd surely fail. Without Him, I'd, I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. You know, you know how hopeless that would feel? If you're out in the middle of the ocean and your, your sail breaks and you're just 
hoping that, that you'll happen upon somebody. I mean, that's what we would be like without Jesus Christ. Without him, I would be dying, it says. Without him, I'd be enslaved. Without him, I, life would be hopeless, but with, but with Jesus, thank God, I'm saved. Now, the words to that song should remind us of the words that Jesus said in John 15, for without me, you can do nothing. Being poor in spirit is essential to a meaningful relationship with God. It's essential to your walk with God. And it's how we, we came to know God in salvation. It's how we're supposed to live every single day. That we are wholly dependent on him. God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. And I remember when, when we first, when Olivia first started walking. And, uh, and she was, I mean just same height she is now. But real little. And <laughs> she's not even here to defend herself. That was not nice. But she was little. We lived across the parking lot from the church. And, and we would walk to church, of course, because it, you know, it wasn't real far. It would be probably like from the front door here to the, the first apartment right over there. And so you walk across the grass, then you walk across the parking lot. And when she was little, of course, we would carry her. But when she started walking, you know, it didn't take long before she thought she could do this by herself. And the parking lot wasn't really even. It, it wasn't a great parking lot. There were lots of, you know, potholes and, I mean, just little potholes, but, but enough to trip her up. Well, I remember one day we're walking across and she's got this blonde hair bouncing around and she's looking at me like, I can do this, Dad. And she's like, just probably 14 months old, just real little. And so I said, finally, I was like, okay, you've been fighting this, so go ahead. And I don't think mom would have been very happy because she was in her Sunday clothes and we all know what's happening, what's going to happen next. The first uneven step, just splat. So she's crying. I go to pick her up and start walking again. Well, guess what she does again? She starts pulling her hand away again from me. Like, I can do this, dad. I mean, I was like, you just fell. Well, she doesn't really care. She wants to prove it. So she pulls her hand away again and she starts walking. And the next uneven step, splat. Just like that. And the process went over and over. But, you know, it reminds me of how we are with God. In our walk with God. In that he, we are to be wholly, completely dependent on him. And like a beggar that has no hope of even getting out and earning anything. Without him we won't survive. And yet we pull our hand away thinking we can do this. And that's how we are. That's how we think we, we, we think that we can survive, that we can do it without him. But, but Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In our walk with God, it is essential to be poor in spirit if we want to walk with God. The second, the second um, attribute or characteristic is if you're going to be poor in spirit, you must be poor in spirit. It's essential to your happiness. So it's essential to your walk first, but it's also essential to your happiness. Who doesn't want to be happy? I mean, the verse begins with the word blessed, and that appears nine times here in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Or these are called, does anybody remember what these first few verses are called? The what? The Beatitudes, okay? And, and it's, about, it's about having contentment. It's about being satisfied. It's about joy. You could say happiness. The best description for this word is happy. Content. It's a condition of the soul. And Christ uses the statement, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when Jesus sets up his kingdom, uh, his kingdom reign on earth during the millennium, things are going to be pretty good. Uh, they're going to be great, actually. 
better than they've been since before the fall. And there's going to be a lot of happiness. There's going to be a lot of kingdom joy. And Christ is saying that we don't have to wait until he reigns in the millennium as a king on the earth to be that satisfied. He says if you're poor in spirit, that happy contentment, the kingdom of heaven, that can be yours right now. And I'm, I'm telling you, the world says happiness comes with what you have, that it comes with what you accomplish. Happiness comes with your money and it comes with your career. So go get it. But God says happiness comes when you're as humble as a helpless beggar. No sense of self, just contentment in your relationship with Christ. Nothing more. Well, you talk about opposing views. Uh, you talk about opposite <laughs> contrasting opinions here. The point is your happiness is not dependent on things. And it's not dependent on people. And it's not dependent on your circumstances. It's dependent on your humility before God. And be careful not to assume that, that changing circumstances are going to bring you happiness. Amen. If I just get out of this, I'll be happy. No, you more likely need a change of heart. We talked about that with Lot a few weeks ago in Genesis is that Lot thought once he was out of Sodom that his problems would be solved, but he had Sodom in his heart. So he carried Sodom with him and he went to the little city and that didn't help. So they went to the mountain and he ended up in that position and it wasn't a really a change of scenery that Sodom, that Lot needed. It was a change of heart. And that's, we've got to learn that a change of scenery is not going to make us happy. We need a change of heart, and usually it's a matter of humility. Listen, if I honestly reflect on the times in my life when I've been most miserable, they've always been accompanied by a sizable dose of pride. My most miserable times. And listen, that can be good or bad. I mean, it's always bad, but it can be, there are times of pride when I'm proud of myself for something, or I'm kind of feeling like I'm doing pretty good. And when I'm feel, feeling that way, guess what? I'm miserable. Or if I'm proud because I'm discontent or things aren't going well or my circumstances aren't good, which seems to be more general than that things are going great. But you know, you can be just as proud and be and it throwing pity parties and feeling bad for yourself. It's still the focus is still the same. Over here you're me-centric and over here you're me-centric. And in both places, you will find yourself miserable because happy is the man that is poor in spirit, is the idea. You can blame your discontentment on your circumstances, but that just distracts you from the roots, the, uh, the cause of that unhappiness, and that is pride. Pride in something good makes you miserable. Pride in, I mean, think about it, athletes. <laughs> I mean, just last week, there was an athlete for the Las, Las Vegas Raiders, Henry Ruggs. He's a First round draft pick last year, one of the fastest guys in the NFL. I mean, uh, I mean, he has a future ahead of him. Um, you know, just he's an incredible wide receiver. Um, he's out on an early morning in an early morning drive with some another lady or lady in his car and driving a Corvette or something and going 165 miles an hour in Las Vegas in the middle of the morning at 2:45 or something, and he hits a car going 120 something miles an hour. And that car that he hit bursts into flames and, and another young lady was killed inside that car. And here's a man who has it all, literally millions of dollars. But he still feels like he has to be out searching for something more because the money in the bank account isn't enough to keep him happy. Yeah. So he's out looking for the next new high. 
and he took somebody's life. The Raiders obviously cut him the next day. He's awaiting trial. He'll probably go to jail for a long time. His NFL career is over. And somebody that has it all can be just as miserable as somebody who has nothing. What they have in common is pride. When we're full of pride, we can't be anything but unhappy. Happiness and contentment and satisfaction isn't about stuff. It's about a humble spirit. Pride is so good at promising happiness. Because you think, well, if I make life all about me, I'm going to get what I want. And that will make me happy. But not everything that we think we want is good for us or makes us happy. It never delivers. You might, not, you might get what you want, but pride's always accompanied by unhappiness. Being poor in spirit is essential to your happiness. So being poor in spirit, it's essential to your walk. Okay, if you're writing these down, it's essential to your walk with God. It's essential to your happiness. And finally, being poor in spirit is essential to influence the lost. I want to make a difference. And I think we all do. I mean, after this last missions revival, and Brother Ruckman, I wish you could have been here. It was just, last year was awesome. This year was just, just as awesome. It was amazing. I think we have, from by my count, four young people that either confirmed or surrendered to a call to give their life to missions. We had a young person get saved. We've got, I mean, God was moving. I mean, I want to make a difference. I think we're all in a stage right now. I'm like, I want to make a difference well, Matthew 5 through 7 gives a very clear blueprint on how to make a difference and how to live the Christ life. And much of it has to do with influencing the world around us, the people around us. But I want you to notice the order in the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are. Verses 3 through 12, the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, are, are. You get to verses 13 and 14. Ye are the salt of the earth. 14. Ye are the light of the world. So it starts from then. It starts though with are. Blessed are. Because you are this. Well after that from verse 16 on. It's not so much about what you are. It's about what you should do. But I want you to note the order in Matthew 5. The order is it starts with what you are. Before you do what you do. Meaning that you have to be before you can do. You have to be the right person before you can go out and do the right things. And a lot of times we skip the first step and we go straight to the second step. And before we are the right person, we go out and just try to do the right things. But it's like a Phariseeism. It's empty. We're just doing. We're going through the motions But Jesus said very clearly, uh, this is the order that it should be in. The Pharisees, they let them go out and do what they want. That's what they do. But first, for my disciples, I'm looking for people that are first. Being is first. Doing is second. So what's the first thing Jesus says we should be? Well, poor in spirit. Humble. And I submit to you that being poor in spirit is the fundamental characteristic of a child of God. And Eastside, I, I mean... There should be nothing else that we are, as a church are known for than a humble spirit. 
I mean, we can have all the greatest programs in the world and we can do everything right. I mean, I was listening to the orchestra up here playing tonight. Isn't that fun, Brother Ruckman, to see them up here playing instruments? And I, I mean, I just love it. I, I, I want to keep growing that. And I just, I, I think that's great. I, I was telling somebody today that has three boys about our children's ministry and and I would love for her to bring her, her kids to our children's ministry. And I love to hear our choir sing. And I, I mean, I just, I love all, what we're trying to do. But, but if we're a church that does all the right things, but we have a spirit that is an affront to people that come to Eastside, I don't want any part of the other stuff. We need to probably strip all of that away and just say, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's just focus on that. A spirit of Humility. Not a spirit of pride and not a spirit that says, look what we've accomplished. Know that we are first humble people. That's where it all begins. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, that's where Jesus started. He's talking about his disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's how you came to God for salvation. It's how you're supposed to live before God and others. And as we're poor in spirit, it leads to mourning over sin and meekness and mercy and all the other things. It begins to be evident in our lives as we're salt and light. Christ fleshes it out. He says, if you are what you're supposed to be, then all these other things will happen. If you are what you're supposed to be, we could read this in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. We could go down and look at it. If you are what you're supposed to be, then you'll be able to admit when you're wrong and you'll humble yourselves before other people. It's in Matthew 5, 21 through 24. If you are what you are supposed to be, then you'll give up your rights even when you're wronged. If you are what you're supposed to be, just giving you examples Jesus uses. If you are what you're supposed to be, you'll love not just your friends, you'll love your enemies too. If you are what you're supposed to be, then you'll serve God without expecting credit or having to get attention for it. If you are what you're supposed to be, you're going to resist the urge to have a critical or judgmental spirit toward other people. But it all starts with what you are. The list goes on and on. And Christ gives example after example of outliving the lost. But it all starts with being poor in spirit. Humility. That's the first step. And maybe we're not doing because maybe we're not being. And specifically, we're not maybe being humble. Now listen, I'm not even preaching this as a response to anything. I'm just telling you, in my own life, and my own heart, this is a lesson I need. It is spiritually impossible to outlive the lost if we are not first poor in spirit. Like a beggar with no hope before God. For those who struggle with pride, which would be all of us, and a me-centric worldview, which would be all of us, you know, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to be tested. At work, I mean, I don't know who you work around, but I, I, I've worked in places before where it was all I could do to just not respond in pride, to not lash out. You'll, you'll be tested at home. I just did a marriage, marriage retreat, a couple's retreat, and just thinking about all the ways, and, and honestly, there's probably no relationship where there are more causes or more opportunities for offense than a husband and wife. Around each other that much, and you can't help but have opportunities for offense. You're going to be tested. You're going to be tested with your family, your extended family. You'll be tested on the road while you're driving. You'll be tested at the store. You'll be tested in line. And yes, you'll even be tested at church. 
I, I submit you'll probably even be tested serving in a ministry with somebody. You might even be tested serving in the ministry with somebody you've always gotten along with. And your response, your, your natural desire or natural leaning for response will be to lash out. And you may even fail in those interactions. And you will fail if you are not poor in spirit. Because you can't do until you can be. It's essential in your walk. Or it's essential to your walk. It's essential to your happiness. And it's essential to your influence. If you want to please God, if you want to be happy, and you want to make a difference, it starts with humility. You say, well, how? Because I'm just, I mean, it's hard. Well, yeah. Well, what you need first is a daily reminder through God's word of the difference between you and God. Because I'm telling you, the difference is great. But when we get out of the book and we're not in it regularly, we start to forget just how vast the difference is. When we don't go to church like we should and we're not as faithful as we should, we aren't reminded as often about just how rotten we are as sinners. And it's easy to, to forget just how, at our core, how sinful we are. We need to be in God's word because it's a mirror. And it reminds us that we're not everything we pretend like we are. You need a daily, so you say, oh, how, do, how am I supposed to be poor in spirit? You need a daily reminder, a daily reminder of who you are compared to God. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and this one is really scientific. You need to choose humility in your interactions with other people. You say, well, well, that just, that's just too simple. I can't. Well, have you, wait, have you been saved? The Bible says you're a new creature. So you have a new nature. And you have the Holy Spirit who's there to help you with those things. He's transformed you from the inside out. Christ wouldn't ask you to do something that he doesn't give you the power to do. Also, if you're a disciple, you have a commandment to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So no matter how you feel, and no matter how somebody pushes you, and no matter how angry you get, no matter how much you want to lash out, you have two things that the lost don't have. You, you have, you have uh, the changed nature, and you have a commandment of Christ. And those two things are enough to help you in no matter the situation to help you in every one of them to choose humility. You can. Is it easy? No. Is it natural? No. Is it fun to eat crow? No. It doesn't taste like chicken. But knowing that God, you've been changed and you've been commanded, knowing that it must be, then it must be possible to daily and consistently choose humility. But let me give you an out, okay? Here's your, if you've been looking for an escape, plan here it is okay you can write it down you only have to be humble if you want to please God or be happy or make a difference otherwise you're off the hook and I hope you caught the irony because I honestly I, I don't know anybody in this room that would say I don't want to please God I don't know anybody in this room that would say I don't want to be happy I don't know anybody, honestly, I don't, want, I don't know anybody that would say, I don't want to make a difference. So that means you're not off the hook, by the way. Let me just clear that up. Don't take that little sound bite out and put that on the internet. Pastor said, you don't have to do these things. No, 
You know, we all want to please God, and we all want to make a difference. And, and, and we, I mean, listen, we want these things to happen. We want to walk with God. It, but it starts with humility. You choosing humility daily. I would say this, start with humility before God. And if you're, as you're humble before God in your, deba- your daily devotions, in your personal life, you'll find that the humility you struggle with with other people, it comes a lot easier. Because your walk with God influences your influence on others. It all starts with being poor in spirit. I hope that we will choose as a church to say this is the defining mark of me as a disciple and of our church as a local church trying to be light in this world. We're going to be poor in spirit. Let's stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.